Father, we ask as we come to your word that you would, as ever, speak to us. Help us to hear your voice and to respond with praise and thanks. Amen. So yes, as Paul pointed out, I dug myself a small hole last week. Uh, We outlined the challenge it is to see the Israelites suffering under the oppressive rule of Egypt's king and God seemingly sort of sitting on the sidelines and not doing very much. And I said, that's all right, we can wait. We'll see how the rest of Exodus shows God at work to fix things. Well, a week has passed. Do these next two chapters show us any progress? Or are we going to see more of the same, a a sort of holding pattern? Sure, we get a burning bush and that's always very exciting, but it doesn't fix anything by itself, does it? Cold Chisel have a well-known song. It's not about the burning bush, but it could be. They called it Flame Trees instead. Maybe they had multiple burning bushes in their mind, I don't know. But it's a song about how you feel about the, the town that you grow up in. And in the chorus, there's these lines... There's no change, there's no pace, everything within its place. And it kind of picks up on the way it seems like everything always stays the same in in your hometown. Is that going to be the case for Israel? That they're stuck in their home in Egypt and stuck in slavery and everything will just roll on the same year after year with no sign of any improvement. Well, we came to the end of chapter 2 and God was looking at Israel and was concerned and the question was well what does that mean there's an expectation that he'll do something you know if he's if he's that concerned he might get on with things that was my promise last week but we get to chapter three and suddenly the focus switches we turn to Moses off in club Midian Uh, that's a lame joke they get better Uh, It seems like the people of Israel have been dropped as a topic. They're a bit of a hot potato, we'll just leave them behind. But have they? You know what it's like, um, we all all do it. You're off for a walk somewhere. Maybe you're walking along the Blue Mile and the sea breeze is lovely or you're out in the bush somewhere and, uh, you know, it's it's just nature, it's great and you kind of get lost in the moment. Uh, You're having a great time. You don't really notice the passage of time. No doubt that's exactly what happened to Moses. There he was taking his flock of sheep out for a walk and suddenly discovered that he'd taken a trip of several days and just hadn't noticed. There he was. Uh, It's really easy for it to happen. I mean, frankly, it's a wonder that more of us don't kind of come to our senses and discover we've walked a broken hill. Uh, I don't think he just accidentally wanders across the desert. The The unspoken reality is that God has brought him to Horeb for a bit of a chat. And it's not because God didn't want to have to yell at him from across the room or across the desert or whatever. Uh, God could have met with him anywhere. But what he's doing is bringing Moses here to set the scene for the next time Moses turns up at Horeb to meet with God because that time he'll have all the Israelites in tow. And of course when you get to that part of the story, we'll we'll get there eventually, uh, it's a huge spectacle. There's thunder and lightning and all sorts of bells and whistles. All we get this time around is just this little flame tree. But it works as an attention getter, it catches Moses' eye, he goes over to have a look. But it's not just a party trick. It's a smaller version of the gathering, the great gathering of the people in chapter 19. And it's meant to sort of symbolise and indicate that God can be present with his people and yet make sure that they're not consumed by that experience. That's what's happening for Moses right now on the small scale and it's what was going to happen for the whole nation on the larger scale in the future. 
There's a way in which this is a, uh, an early ripple or an echo of the great event that's coming. And so that's, uh, it's worth noticing that because that makes it significant that the first thing that happens in this encounter that Moses has is that God identifies himself to Moses. Because remember, Moses grew up in Egypt, uh, has had uh, minimal education in uh, Israelite stuff. He knows probably all about the Egyptian culture and way of life, but he doesn't know much about God, the, the God of his ancestors. And so here is God uh, filling in the gaps for him and revealing himself in much the same way that will happen with the Israelites down the track. And God tells Moses, the time has come to act. Uh, He hasn't forgotten his people. He hasn't forgotten the promises that he made to them. The moment has arrived. And they will be brought to this mountain, just like Moses, uh, verse 12 tells us, to worship God. They'll meet with this God. They'll learn who he is. But first there's just that little matter of uh, uh, arranging the travel arrangements and to make it happen, verse 10 tells us, God sends Moses to fetch them. That instruction to head back to Egypt must have concerned Moses just a little bit because if you remember from last week, he is actually a wanted man in Egypt. Uh, And so perhaps maybe it's not a surprise that he pushes back against God's idea just a little He has uh, four buts to try and wriggle out of the task. First, in verse 11, he he says, but who am I? Why why pick me? Why would I be the right person for the job? It's clearly the wrong question because God doesn't answer it. He doesn't say anything about Moses at all. He just talks about himself because it doesn't really matter who Moses is. Moses is simply the one that God has chosen for this role. So Moses tries another tack. If he's meant to go and represent God, then he'd better find out who he's talking to so that he he can say, I was talking to God, and by the way, you know, God... uh, So he wants a little bit of information to uh, enable him to answer. God gives him uh, the answer to his question this time, but even so, I think still an unexpected one. Uh, Not many people introduce themselves by saying, I'm me. Uh, It doesn't feel like it adds any information. But essentially that's what God is saying. I am who I am. I'm, I'm self-defining. You can't label me or limit me in any other way. I am the God who is God. And that kind of sounds obvious to us, but back then this was in a sense new information. The Israelites hadn't heard this name before. Uh, and you'll notice in, in verse 15 that it's uh, written there with Lord all in capital letters. That's the shorthand that the translators use every time to indicate when the name God gives here is repeated in the text because otherwise it gets really confusing and cumbersome. Uh, So there it is in verse 15, more information for the Israelites. But even so, it's still kind of a bit broad. And so from verse verse 16, uh, God provides further information. He tells Moses, go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, there's that name again, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt and I promise to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Makes you wish there was a shorthand way of putting that together. <laughs> Capital letters. Anyway, uh, I don't know if they've got to acronyms. Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. God is not just saying, yeah, I'm God, then that's all I'm going to give you. He's the God who makes promises and is believed. He reminds them of the promises that he's made that he hasn't forgotten. And in passing on that information, uh, Moses is told, the elders, they'll believe you. They'll hear God's voice through you and take it on board. God's a promise-keeping and a believed God. He's also, uh, we get the hint just there, spoiling for a fight with Pharaoh. He sends them off to the king of Egypt uh, asking for a, you know, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, perhaps. I don't know. Um, God knows Pharaoh is going to need some convincing and he's actually going to use this as an opportunity to punish Egypt which we'll look at next week. There you go, I've dug myself another hole. Anyway, uh, oh, and by the way, that's seven chapters of homework reading on your bookmark, just so you notice. Liam was right, it's useful to have that thing. Uh, but to, to kind of get back on topic, uh, what God is saying here in answering this objection from Moses, this but, is God is a God who is utterly independent. He's himself and yet he's totally for his people. He doesn't need them, but he's chosen them and he's not inclined to change his mind. That's two of, them, uh, two of Moses' excuses disposed of. When we get to chapter 4, Moses moves from kind of ignorant buts to foolish buts. Uh, his third question, what if they don't believe me? And that's kind of dumb because God has just finished saying that they will believe him. Uh, And what's more, he's kind of described himself as a God who makes promises and is believed and whose voice is heard and acknowledged. So that kind of doubles down on it. Of course they're going to believe Moses. But still, being gracious, he gives Moses some signs. He can turn his staff into a snake. Uh, And then back again. His hand can become diseased and then be be healed. And if those don't work, then he can take fresh water and turn it to blood. Now, they're all remarkable signs and what's more, you don't have to dig up the bush and hope that it stays alight all the way back to Egypt. You know, they're very portable. They're also signs that carry a a hint of danger, of threat. Uh, Snakes, you know, uh, snakes aren't friendly creatures. They haven't been since the beginning of the Bible. Uh, you know, if Moses had been able to turn his staff into a cute little pussycat, that would have been impressive, but everyone would have been cooing with delight rather than thinking, hang on, this God's serious. Uh, there's, there's signs that suggest the prospect of judgment. In other words, God's saying, you better believe me. I'm not messing around here. That takes us to chapter 4, verse 10, and Moses' final but. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech in tongue. I don't speak good, you know. Which is a silly thing to say on many levels, particularly because he uses the word eloquent. Anyway... 
I think at this point, God sort of runs out of patience. You know, he's humoured Moses a fair bit. So basically he says, look, buddy, I'm God. I know what I'm doing. Let's get on with it. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I'll help you speak and we'll teach you what to say. In other words, let's just get on with it, Moses. You've, you've delayed long enough. You know what the job is. It, it, you know, it's the creator of the universe telling you, this is a Clayton's choice. Go do it. But Moses is a man of uh, great persistence and in verse 13, he pushes it too far. Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he says, righto, we'll get Aaron to do the talking for you. Uh, And just kind of reading this far into the story, it becomes clear, if it wasn't already, that Moses is not the hero of this story. You know, he's the guy who ran away from the rap in Egypt. He's the guy who kind of argues back with God to try and weasel his way out of doing anything particularly dangerous. And Moses, of course, is the only human witness to this particular conversation. He's the one that's put it down for us so that we'll know, yeah, okay, Moses knows he's not the hero of his own story. But, you know, Moses has already demonstrated that he's a slow learner and so maybe he thinks we are too. He uh, makes sure we get the point by giving us uh, further instances of Moses engaging in, in acts of minimal courage and initiative. He's just been sent off by God on on mission. But first, verse 18, he has to go and check with his father-in-law if it's a good idea, right? Because the maker of the universe telling him this is going to work, that's not quite enough. But you add in your father-in-law and then you know you're on safe ground. Uh, Verse 24, we learn Moses has forgotten to circumcise his own son. And let me tell you, it's easier when they're like eight days old than when they grow up. Anyway, he's forgotten and yet... It's left to his heathen wife to do the job. Was Moses too scared? It seems like this is a common thing for Moses. That he just he chickens out all the time. He remains too wimpy to speak on his own. And so Aaron, in a sense, gets some of the glory that might have gone to Moses if he'd just done the job. And yet, in spite of Moses' ineptitude, chapter 4, verse 31 tells us the people believe God and honour him. And really that's the key to understanding how to read the book of Exodus. To steal again from Cold Chisel's song, there's nothing else could set fire to this town. Nothing can shake up the lords of Egypt except for God. Nothing else can unite the tribes of Israel and make one nation out of them, uh, following a single leader, except for God. God's the only one who can dig dig Israel out of their predicament. And as we read Exodus, we'll see that over and over. God making things happen. He might use Moses as as the vehicle for that, but it's always God's word and God's power that achieves the result. So as I was thinking about that, I realised, chapter 3, verse 10, we've we've all been misreading it. Just have another look at it. Uh, It's so innocuous. God says... So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That's like when, you know, you send the kids to get something out of the fridge for you or 
you send your husband off for the bottle of milk he forgot to buy on the way home. We, we, we know how to understand those kind of sentences. I'm sending you to do this. And yet, and yet, I wonder, is Moses being sent to do the task or is it Moses is being sent that achieves the result? We tend to think it's the former because we like to put people as heroes in the story, but it doesn't make sense in the context. In verse 8, God has said he's come down to rescue them and to bring them out. He doesn't say anything about needing a hero to do it for him. And that explains why Moses' question, you know, who am I to do this, doesn't get an answer because actually you're not doing this, buddy. God talks about himself because God's the one that's going to do it. He sends Moses in, not because he thinks Moses is going to be able to get the job done, but because having him in Egypt, making the right noises, is going to trigger the great clash with Pharaoh that God is after. Moses is like the match that God is going to use to light a fire in Pharaoh's court. God, in these two chapters uh, today, has set up the friction with Pharaoh that will ignite the conflict we'll look at next week. But uh, I'm going to keep pushing things off to the weeks ahead. While we wait for that battle... Let's think about the week that's just passed for us. We've seen massive amounts of rain, uh, flooding that's claimed lives in Queensland. Russia has invaded Ukraine, unless you've been living under a rock and they've still done it anyway. Uh, There's all the uncertainty of what that might mean. Will will this war grow into something larger and, and more frightening? The earth shook in Sumatra, bringing death and destruction. A mudslide near Rio has killed scores. There's a pandemic, in case you missed it. The headlines keep on coming. What is God doing in all of this? He doesn't tell us. See, he's not actually accountable to us. He doesn't have to sort of send us dispatches to explain every disaster. This is why this is taking place. I hope you're okay with that. That's not his job. But he does give us stories like this one in Exodus to tell us the one thing that we do need to know. He's the Lord. He's the one who made all things who knows all things. He's the faithful God who keeps his people. When we're in danger or despair or doubt or disaster and we want to know where to turn, God's answer is this. Is it not I? Is it not I, the Lord? I am who I am and who I am is good and true and loving. I forget none of you. We may not understand what God is doing in any particular moment, but we know he is the one who can revive the weary as we remember he can set fire to this world, overturn it completely and yet not destroy it. He is the one who can and will make it our true home. He is our good God and we are glad to believe him. Chapter 4 verse 31. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder that you are indeed concerned about your people, about your whole creation. You know how things are so far off their course and you have not left things alone. You've sent your son redeem us and we know he will return and bring your kingdom in all its fullness we're sorry for the times we doubt 
and pray that you'll strengthen our faith so that we might look forward to his coming and in the meantime honour you in all we do. Amen.